The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Today we're going to be looking at the question, is there hope for the innocents in our jails? Now, that's innocence, I-N-N-O-C-E-N-T-S. <laughs> well, I don't know that there's much innocence. Unfortunately, once people get into jail, they lose their innocence for the most part. Um, I guess can talk more about that. Um, but this is the question of what about the people who were wrongfully convicted? Now, probably some of you are thinking to yourselves, um, oh, yeah, you know, everybody in jail says they didn't do it. They all claim they're innocent, um, but, but these are liars and, and thieves and murderers and all of that, and so why should we believe them? But in fact, um, there are some people um, who are in jail who have been convicted wrongfully, and my guest today is one of them. And um, his story is amazing. We'll he- hear him tell that. Um, and it is, it's amazing for, in and of itself for the fact that one person endured this, but it's more amazing for the fact that it is uh, symptomatic of there being others, many others uh, like him in jails, prisons all over this country who, um, for various reasons, perhaps having poor attorneys, um, who didn't really uh, represent, represent them well, perhaps because of the police or the prosecutors hiding evidence, um, perhaps because some witness lied and the jury believed him, all kinds of reasons. We're going to be looking at some of these today. And um, the story of my guest um, really does have a happy ending, uh, although, of course, he can never get the 16 years back that he lost. Um, still, what he is doing now for people in his position who have been wrongly convicted also uh, is, is very admirable and, and you know, certainly goes against the stereotypes that a lot of people have that once someone is in jail and accused of the brutal rape and murder, such as he was, um, that they couldn't go out and get an education, get a bachelor's degree, a master's degree, as Jeffrey Deskovic did. Um, and no less to um, win a settlement and donate a large portion of it to founding the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation, a foundation to help um, people who uh, also were convicted wrongly. So, um, Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, let's start with your story, and let's start before, I mean, you know, as a psychiatrist, um, I was kind of warning you before, <laughs> just before we went on, 
that I'm going to start from birth. So, um, let, because then that'll really help people to understand who you were before these events happened to you. So, tell us about when you were born, where you were born, you know, what your parents were like, what your childhood was like, and then we'll get to what happened to you. Sure. I was born um, in uh, North Terrytown, which later on was renamed Sleepy Hollow. I mean, well, it's the setting for the uh, the uh, Headless Horseman story it's, huh. uh, around uh, uh, Halloween. So I was born there. I was raised in uh, Peekskill, which is um, a city in uh, Westchester County, New York. Yes, uh, my grandparents had a home in Lake Mayo Pack, and I used to go there for years um, during, even from my childhood up through being an adult, even. Yeah, that's not too. Uh, that's not too far uh, yeah. away. Right. Uh, so I was, I was raised in a, a single parent um, household. It was I lived with my uh, mother, and my grandmother. So my grandma was kind of like the second parent. Uh, I had a three and a half year younger uh, brother. Um, went to Catholic school, grades two through eight. I uh, was went to um, Peekskill uh, High School. Uh, kind of lived a double life in the sense that, um, uh, like in school, I was in high school. I mean, even in grade school, I was kind of more like quiet into myself. But after school, living in the growing up in the apartment complex that that I did, where there were a lot of, you know, there were there were a lot of kids there, and I was kind of like the life of the party there. So, like for the most part, whatever activity I suggested we do, whether that was you know swim or play ball, uh, you know, play board games or basketball or diff- you know ride bikes, that kind of thing would be pretty much what everybody would do for the most part. Huh, that's interesting. Why do you think you felt more? Um... Uh, m- more like a leader or less inhibited when you were in your home um, complex. I think I was just more familiar with the just just it was greater familiarity, greater. I, uh, I mean, did you feel acceptance. intimidated at school? Yeah, yeah, I did because they were they were. I mean, they, they, I wasn't because I wasn't really as, fam- as familiar with them. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure why. I mean, it's. Uh, Unusual dynamic, I know, which is why I bothered to include it in mm-hmm. my biographical. Mm-hmm. I just can't. Just, I'm just not that good at figuring out why that that is. Well, and what um, were your parents divorced? No, my my father was never a factor in my life. Uh, when my mother was pregnant, he wanted to get out of financial responsibility, so he denied that I was his, and you know, still continues that uh, position uh, until now. Huh. So he was never. He was never involved in your life at all? No. And, I mean, you never met? Did you ever meet him? Yeah, a few years after I was released from prison, I sought him out, and, you know, I met him that that way. Uh-huh. And did he still deny that you were his? Yeah, he does. He does. He still maintains that position to this day. And why didn't your mother have a paternity test? Uh, well, I'm not, well, at the time, I'm not sure if they, they had... As paternity test. I mean, I was born in 1973, so I, I don't know that paternity tests were around then or not. I, I, I couldn't tell you that. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, the reason I don't now is because uh, he doesn't want to have a paternity test, and so I don't, uh-huh. even even though I, w- I would like to establish it for him biologically, I, you know, I just don't feel right trying to force it on him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know I, I know I could invoke the legal process and accomplish that if I wanted to, but mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to do it that way, so I'll just mm-hmm. leave it as is unless mm-hmm. unless and until he changes his mind. Okay. Um so 
So, but that's interesting because, um, so I mean, there wasn't a, a male role model in your life. Well, we'll get back to this. So, okay, so there you, so in high school, so there you, did you get decent grades in high school? Uh, the first, the first year I didn't, I mean, the kids were like older than me, so I was, uh, I was like kind of picked on there. So, I mean, I, it really dramatically impacted my grades. I would have had to I would have had to go to summer school in order to pass, but then I knew if I did that, then that mean that meant that the next year I would still be going to school with the same kids, and so I just I I decided not to go to summer school, which resulted in my being left back, and then you know, I was I was with a different group of, uh-huh. of kids that uh-huh. were more my my peer peer range, and so things started to uh, improve some to some extent for me in that, and and then you know my grades started getting um, better as well. Hmm. Okay. And so then what happened? <laughs> a classmate of mine uh, in in my sophomore year, a, a classmate of mine, uh, Angela Correa, was um, uh, found uh, murdered and raped in uh, Peekskill. Mm-hmm. There hadn't been like a murder in Peekskill for about... Uh, about about twenty years, so I mean it was a really big uh, item. I mean, they're, they're, uh, the whole the whole city really kind of like stopped. I mean, there was town hall meetings, you know, about it. I mean, you know, how come the police haven't solved haven't solved the crime? I mean, you know, safety tips uh, were were um, dispensed by you know by like the mayor and the, the police, and and uh, parents were even coming right to the high school just to pick their kids up after school, just to bring them right straight home. Hmm. Yes, there was a lot of fear, just... rumors, and paranoia in, in uh, the city. Uh-huh. Yes, for my listeners who aren't familiar, P- Peekskill, first of all, this is New York, and it's a very small town, um, you know, very quiet, very uh, calm, very pretty, um, very, you know, it's, it's certainly believable that um, it's not the kind of place where rapes and murders go on, or at least it, it wasn't, and... Um, uh, e- even in those days, and I don't think it is today either, for that matter. Um, it's it's a suburb of New York, and about an hour, a little more than an hour away. And uh, it's a very it's a place where you would go to get away from rapes and murders and other kinds of crime in the city. So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. So um, over the uh, <clears throat> over the next six weeks, the police played this kind of. Uh, Kind of game with me in which um, you know half of half of the uh, half the time they would speak to me as if I was a suspect, and the other other half the time they would uh, talk to me as if they needed my help to solve the crime. Well, wait, and, how did they get to you in the first place? What made them start to talk to you? Was Angela a friend of yours? No, she was not. She was she was a classmate that. I mean, she was in two of my classes as a freshman and one as a sophomore. I mean, I knew I knew her name. She knew mine. That was really the extent of it. I mean, I wasn't even really on a high vibe basis with her. Uh, the police story is that they interviewed many students from the high school, <clears throat> and some of them told the police that they might want to talk to me because I was I was I didn't participate in a lot of organized sports. Uh, so that was one thing that they said attracted them to me. The other thing which they said attracted them to me. They said that I was uh, uh, overly upset at the uh, victim having been murdered, but there were, you know, mental health, there were free, there was free mental health services offered throughout the city of Peekskill 
uh, to help people process uh, what had happened. Again, keeping in mind that murders were uh, very rare. Uh huh. So wait, the fact that you didn't play sports and the fact that you were upset that she, she died. Yeah, it's very thin. It's not really, in my mind, it's not a legitimate basis for suspicion at all. But, you know, this is their story, and really what they did, as we'll get into later on in the program, really didn't doesn't make sense. But, so do you so. think it was like you had mentioned that the people in the class ahead of you um, picked on you, you were bullied? Yes. Do you think it was mainly because there were some people who didn't like you, and they they wanted to... You know, they wanted to get you in trouble. I'm not really sure what their what their what their motivation was. I mean, and I just didn't really fit in. I just just didn't really uh, fit fit in with them. You know, um, I mean, I don't I don't really think I had the same sense of style that they did either. Uh huh. Um, was there was it something to do with your family or your ethnic background or no i don't think either of those were were factors no so you were it was that you were kind of a loner yes okay yes. so okay so now tell us more about that you were overly upset about her death how did that well, first of all, why were you? I mean, if you really—I don't think I don't feel like I was overly upset. I was upset, sure, but then again, so was so were a lot of other so were a lot of people. I mean, that was really my first—that was really my first encounter with death. I mean, I, at the time, I thought that you know, death was something that happened to people after they you know ha- had a full life, grew old, and you know, it was pretty seemed pretty sad to me that somebody that young, you know, uh-huh. would. Uh, would lose with uh you know lose their life. Yes, because you're only 16 at the time. I that's just right. want to make sure that that's clear. Well, um we're I'm getting the signal that we need to take a break now. Um obviously the story is just heating up. Um it does certainly seem like um it was kind of a f- <laughs> kind of flimsy flimsy evidence to go on to begin with, but I guess they were pressured to cu- to find somebody to to blame for this. Um my guest is Jeffrey Deskovic. Uh, we're talking today about is there hope for the innocence in our jails? And uh, we'll be back with more. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com 
stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about is there hope for the innocence in our jails? And my guest is Jeffrey Deskovic. He's um, an example of an innocent who um, was convicted of the brutal rape and murder of his high school classmate. And um, we're just about, we're, we're, we're kind of before the break, just at the point where, where you're... Um, your classmates um, are pointing the finger at you, directing the police to uh, to question you. So take it from there. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, I mean, the the it was about about six weeks, and uh, for about six weeks, the police kind of played this game with me, in which half the time they would uh, talk with me as if I was a suspect, and the other half the time they would uh, pretend like they needed my help to solve the crime. They would say things like. Uh, the police won't talk freely around us. They they will around you. Uh, let let us know. The police if you're, or the you mean the, the police? The police. I mean no, the police. but the police said who won't talk freely around them? The kid. The other. They, they were yes. saying that the, the the kids in the city yes. would not okay. talk freely around them, but they would around me. Yes. Let let us know if you hear rumors. Or stop in from time to time. Okay. You know. So I mean, when I was um, really young, I mean, I had. The idea that you know, I thought that I might want to be a police officer. So mm. I, I think that, in a way, um, that kind of played into so this unexpected opportunity mm. to be a quasi police officer much earlier than life than normally would be the case. I uh-huh. think that kind of, you know, there was a kind of like a psychological uh, dynamic there, doctor. Yes, yes, <laughs> that you <laughs> got to be a policeman for a day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other factor, uh, the other factor is was that. Uh, you know, as you alluded to earlier, I mean, I didn't grow up in a, um, didn't really have like a male role model. So to some, I mean, to, so to some extent, I mean, the, I mean, one of the police officers, I mean, their routine was like, do like a good cop, bad cop routine. So, mm-hmm. uh, so one of the police officers had assumed the role of my friend. So he would be like especially friendly to me. So I think that that was another, looking, looking back in hindsight, I feel like that was another, uh, Another factor, yes. You know, along with my general naiveness, being being sixteen years old. Yes. All right. So they reached the point in the police investigation that they con- they convinced me to take a lie detector test. Uh, so they had told me they did that by telling me that they had some uh, new information which had uh, just come in that they wanted to share with me, but couldn't do so unless I took and passed a. Uh, po- a polygraph test, so it was like mm-hmm. a like a help us to help you to help us type of pretzel logic there, yeah. you know, almost like how somebody might take a polygraph test before going into the intelligence agency or something something like that. Yes. All right. So um, I agreed to take the test, and so the next day, rather than uh, go to report to uh, school, I went to the police station uh, for the test. Uh, since it was a school day, neither my mother nor my grandmother with whom I lived realized that anything was wrong, and hence they did not uh, call around looking for me. So they they drove me to 
the town of Brewster, which is in Putnam County, which mm-hmm. is about forty about forty minutes away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that meant that I was no longer able to leave on my own. I was instead dependent upon the uh, police. Mm. Um, so they, um, there was three police officers with me um, that I knew were police officers. Uh, the polygraphist himself was a Putnam County Sheriff's investigator who was uh, dressed as a civilian who was pretending uh, not to be a cop. Hmm. Uh, so they didn't give me anything to eat the entire time I was there. I mean, I didn't have uh, an attorney present. Uh, they continued their game of good cop, bad, uh, bad cop. They put me in a small room and attached a polygraph uh, machine uh, to me. And before beginning the examination, the polygrapher uh, gave me countless cups of coffee, which, you know, mm. had the impact of speeding up my pulse rate. And yeah. it was actually the pulse rate, which is uh, measured by the polygraph. So, mm-hmm. so in this case, giving serving somebody coffee was part of a setup, right? One of the yeah. few scenarios where that could be... So that could be said. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> so after giving me all these cups of coffee, the uh, polygraphist he used a lot of scare tactics. He um, started um, like he raised his voice at me. He invaded my personal space. He kept asking me the same questions uh, over, over and over again. Uh, you know, as each hour passed, I mean, so too did my, my fear increased in proportion to the time. Uh-huh. Towards the end of the interrogation, uh, I guess he was just exasperated, and he just he said, what do you mean you didn't do it? You just told me through the test results that you did. Mm-hmm. We, we just want you to uh, verbally confirm it. So when he said that to me, that really uh, shot my fear through the roof. So it was, uh, it was at that moment that the police officer who was pretending to be my friend, uh, he came in the room and informed me that the other officers... Uh, wanted to uh, harm me, but he had been holding them off, but uh, couldn't do so indefinitely, uh, that I had to help myself there. Um, and, you know, um, and then he added, if I did as they uh, wanted, not only would they stop what they're doing, but that I you know, would not be arrested, but I could go home afterwards. Uh, you know, Being young, naive, frightened, uh, 16 years old, not thinking about the long term, I was just concerned with my own safety uh, in, in, in the moment. Mm-hmm. You know, I, so I, I made up a story based upon the uh, information which they had given me in the course of the uh, police interrogation, uh, the course, the course of their interrogation. And they had interrogated me for six and a half to seven hours. Mm-hmm. I mean, by the police officer's own testimony, by the end of the interrogation, I was uh, on the floor in a, a fetal position. I was uh, crying uncontrollably. Hmm. So you may. So I guess a- if I was to sum up, I mean, really, at the end of the interrogation, really, I was just a psychological and uh, emotional mess, just totally overwhelmed, uh, frightened, in fear of my life, and I had been threatened, and then you know, then thrown this false life preserver. You know, look, just say what they what they want to hear. You're not, not going to arrest you. So you kind of got like the that that push pull dynamic going mm-hmm. at the same time. So how, where was this um, classmate raped and murdered? In her home, or where was she? In, in uh, Hillcrest Park. It's a park in uh, Peekskill. She, she had gone to the park in connection with her photography class, to, you know, which 
she was supposed to take some pictures of some of the foliage, and the teacher had assigned male male students with each female student, but the the classmate that was assigned to her just you know decided to skip out on the uh, assignment, and so she, for some inexplicable reason, she decided to go on her own. I mean. Uh, from what I understand, she, you know, she had led a really sheltered life. She never went outside, uh, save accompanied by her older sister or her uh, or her uh, parents. Hmm. So you you concocted a story from what you knew. I mean, you just made up a story of how how it happened. Well, I made up a story based upon details the police had leaked to me and, and things that I had read in newspapers and, you know, mm, mm. rumors around town. I mean, yes, I concocted a story. It's not, it's not really that unusual. You know, uh, listeners might be, might be uh, uh, curious to learn that, uh, you know, that uh, coerced false confessions have been the cause of wrongful convictions in 25% of the uh, more than 320 DNA proven wrongful convictions with uh, false confession experts identifying uh, youth and people with mental health problems as a particularly vulnerable population. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, now up to this point, had you told your mother or your grandmother or anybody, um, you know, what the cops were doing, how they were, uh, you know, questioning you and sometimes help making you seem like a suspect? And I mean, did you tell anybody about this? Uh, well, I did initially after the, my initial point of contact with them, but after that, I did not. No, I mean, because I knew that my, knew that my mother didn't want me to speak with the uh, police, you know, but the police had uh, told me that, you know, that, um, you know, it was okay that we speak, and then they were pretending like to, you know, to be, to be my friend, and, you know, I, at the time I was 16 years old, so, I mean, that's kind of like a... Uh, Rebellion type age where you know independence. I mean, dependence on parents versus autonomy is a, that, that that struggle starts to happen. And right. you know, most people that age, you know, we think we know better than our parents anyway. So you right. know, I really was not uh, an, an exception to that. So I, I actually thought that I, I thought that I knew better than my mother, frankly. Yes. I mean, yeah. because I mean, the police they're there to help us, not to hurt us, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so uh, that's the presumption. Right. Unfortunately, there's, there's too many people in uniform that, that, that fail that standard, but that's a different topic for a different time. Mm-hmm. But, so, but okay, just, uh, so, you, yeah. so there you were on the floor in a fetal position, and what happened next? I was, uh, I was uh, arrested. And they took you to? The Peekskill Police Station and where they, uh, you know, they, they, they processed me. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't actually until uh, later on in the, Police station that I that I realized that I was uh, had been arrested. I mean, they, they they hid that from me. I still was up until the point where they actually took the fingerprints uh, from me at the uh, police station and putting putting the ink on the fingers. I mean, it was up until then I thought that their false promise was still good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there you were in a jail cell. And mm-hmm. did you call your mother then, or did they call her, or what they happened? Called, no, they they called they called her. I mean, ultimately, I was assigned the legal aid. I was assigned the legal aid lawyer. Um, I, I think after about uh, maybe thirty five days in the county jail, I, I got uh, bailed out. And uh, at at, at uh, <clears throat> I 
I mean, and not too long after I got bailed out, I, uh, you know, I made, made a, I made a suicide attempt because I felt like my life was 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 over. Hmm. Uh, I had taken a uh, bottle of extra strength uh, Tylenol and went to sleep. Hmm. Yeah. You know, so that you know when I so that resulted in my being uh, involuntarily committed to to a mental hospital for about six months. Huh. All right. We need to so, leave it there again because we of, we have to take a break. But that so is a cliffhanger. So we will uh, angles to this, right, Doctor? Yes. <laughs> very very sad, but very interesting. Yes. Well, we need to take another break. My guest is Jeffrey Deskovic. We're talking about uh, innocence in our jails, of which he was one. And stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Hi, I'm Sam Nussbaum, WellPoint's Chief Medical Officer. We proudly support the March of Dimes mission to improve the health of babies and fight premature birth. We're helping the March of Dimes fund breakthroughs in research and community programs that help more moms have full-term pregnancies and healthy babies. Join us in working together to provide children with a healthier start in life. Visit marchofdimes.org. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We left uh, my guest, Jeffrey Deskovic, in a psychiatric hospital before the break um, at 16 years old after he was falsely um, arrested and jailed for the brutal rape and murder of a high school classmate. Um, so take what happened then. So there you were in the hospital, that, which actually six months in the hospital, that was uh, probably very helpful um, for help to help you to process all of this, although, of course, that was traumatic in itself. But anyway, what happened next? Uh, the, trial, the trial occurred, and, mm-hmm. um, you know, basically, you know, the only evidence that they had was the... Um, with this coerced false confession, uh, the uh, you know the prosecutor committed misconduct and, and and there was fraud by the medical examiner. So the two of those items are like are, are interrelated. So let me break that down for a quick second. 
um, the uh, in order to uh, there was a negative DNA test result that came back from the FBI lab, which showed that uh, semen found on the victim uh, did not did did not match me. So. Um, in order to uh, counter that, the prosecutor got the medical examiner to commit fraud. He got him to say that this was six months after doing the initial autopsy. He got him to say that he found medical evidence to show that the uh, victim had been sexually active, which is what opened the door for the prosecutor to claim that it didn't matter, to argue that it didn't matter that the DNA didn't come from me because it could have come from consensual uh, sex. With somebody else before yeah. you? Yes, exactly. I mean, taking it a step further, the the uh, prosecutor even named another youth by name. He claimed it had this encounter with the victim. Well, but Yet the DNA he, didn't match him, right? Well, they didn't. They, he didn't run a DNA test uh-huh. to, to prove that, and he didn't. He didn't even call him as a uh, as a witness. Huh. Uh, he just made the unsupported argument uh, to the jury. Hmm. Okay. So, so, now, did uh, did anyone public, try to say right. that, like, you had a crush on this girl or something, and that that's why you did this? They tried to say, well, the prosecution's theory again, it wasn't wasn't supported by by anything, but their argument was they said I was obsessed with the victim. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Okay. Was she very pretty? She was. Mm-hmm. She was. Uh, the, now, the the public defender that I had was uh, not not very good. Uh, he never uh, explained to the jury the significance of the DNA uh, not matching me. He never used that to argue that the so-called confession was coerced and false. Um, and he never, uh, he very rarely met with me uh, when, when, when he, when he, uh, when he. I remember one time when he did, he told me he didn't care uh, whether I was guilty uh, or uh, innocent. Uh huh. In fact, early on, he he tried to. Uh, he he, uh, he he actually wanted to insert an insanity defense, but I told him I wouldn't hear of it that I was that I was innocent and that we're not arguing that. Hmm. Um, but he so he uh, when it was time to cross examine this medical examiner, uh, he he never asked the medical examiner a single uh, question. Hmm. So I mean he never presented my alibi to the court. Uh, I was actually playing wiffle ball at the time that the crime um, happened. Huh. So and then he never should have represented me in the first place because of a conflict of interest in that the other youth that the prosecution was falsely claiming it had this encounter with the victim uh, was was represented not only by another member of the legal aid society but also by the attorney who was supposed to be supervising him on my case. So hmm. that prevented the uh, defense from. Uh, seeking um, a DNA test of him or calling him as a witness or just generally exploding the whole uh, consensual sex uh, theory. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And it added it all up. Uh, I added it all up. Uh, the jury uh, found, me, found me guilty. Well, uh, okay, wait, but weren't there any witnesses who saw that you were playing wiffle ball at, the, at that time? I told my attorney that I had an alibi that I was playing wiffle ball with, but he... Uh, my attorney never never spoke to that witness, nor nor called him as nor, nor uh, called him. Hmm. So I didn't have I didn't know. My attorney didn't didn't put on any defense case. Hmm. Okay. So they found you guilty. Yes. Okay. And uh, yeah, from from there, I was sent to a, a men's maximum security uh, prison. Mm-hmm. You know where I you know um, 
you know, it was very, uh, very dangerous uh, situation there. I mean, there was a lot of violence in in, in prison, and you know, in my mind, I wasn't serving. I mean, a lot of times I'm asked, "Well, how did I get through my 16 years in, yeah. in, in prison?" So, yeah. So the answer to that is really a couple of things. I mean, uh, one of them is that in my mind, I wasn't doing that. You know, uh, for serving a 15 to life prison sentence that I'd been sentenced to, I was just doing like a year or two until the next uh, legal proceeding. At which point, at which I was sure. I would um, I, I would win the case because I was innocent and I'd, I'd be released. So I, I just kind of like lived from like appeal to appeal. Huh. Uh, definitely belief in God was another thing. And a third thing was, um, you know, if I found different things to throw myself into. I mean, I studied the law. I used to read about other wrongful conviction cases. I used to read a lot of nonfiction books. I took advantage of the educational opportunities that were that were there. I mean, I got a GED. I got an associate's and then a I completed a year towards the bachelor's degree before the funding was cut uh, for college education for prisoners hmm. by uh, uh, then-Governor uh, Pataki in New York. Hmm. Uh, then I was, uh, I wound up being turned down for parole, I, I think largely based on, on the fact that uh, I, I, asserted, I asserted my innocence at the parole board as opposed to um, admitting guilt and um, expressing remorse and taking responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, ultimately, I was cleared because the following stars lined up just right that one night. Uh, I wound up with the, the Innocence Project agreed to uh, represent me. That was the first mm. big break. And by the way, I only wound up with them because I, I was I was writing a book author in care of the publishing company, but somebody at the uh, publishing company uh, opened the letter and said, sent it to the um, I sent it to this investigator who uh, wrote me right away and, and who suggested that I write the Innocence Project uh, and asked them to represent me. Hmm. So I kind of like wound up with their representation kind of serendipitously. Yes. And then secondly, the um, uh, former Westchester District Attorney uh, Jeanine Pirro, that's a judge show on television, her, she left office, which was important because she would not allow me to get further DNA testing. Huh. Uh, so her successor was willing to allow me to have the testing without having to litigate over it. So that was mm-hmm. another major break. And a third thing uh, was that when we ran the DNA through the DNA data bank, uh, we got lucky in that the actual perpetrator's DNA was in the data bank because left free while I was doing time for his crime, he uh, killed uh, another victim three and a half years uh, later, who was a school teacher, a mother of two. Hmm. So on September 20th, 2006, the conviction was overturned and I was released. I uh, reported uh, uh, back to court uh, November 2nd, at 2006, at which point all the charges were uh, dismissed uh, against me on the grounds of uh, actual innocence. So I was uh, free at that point just to uh, somehow try to uh, rebuild my life uh, with really not very much more than just the suit that I had on. I mean, when you're released, the state releases you with nothing, and uh, they don't, they don't, uh, they, they do have a compensation statute on the books in, in, in New York, which enables you to file a lawsuit in state court, and you could file in federal court, which I did both. But, I mean, the average length of time between uh, release and when those things are settled, either by way of settlement or judgment, is uh, three to seven years. Uh-huh. And then the prisoner reentry groups and 
and nonprofit organizations, they're, they're all oriented towards people on, on parole, and obviously I wasn't, so I, I was outside of their hmm. mandate, so they hmm. wouldn't uh, serve me, so to speak. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's, it was a difficult thing just re, re, readjusting. So, some, uh, for example, I mean, the world was much different technologically. I mean, to give some examples, we didn't have uh, cell phones, Internet, uh, GPS, these different methods of uh, banking. Uh, then uh, when I go down, when I go to different cities and towns I was familiar with, I mean, there's, you know, some, some of the structures are different, like buildings, houses, and other structures are replaced with, with unfamiliar ones, although some of the ones are the same. And the, the people that I knew that once lived in those neighborhoods have uh, long since uh, uh-huh. moved away. So taken cumulatively, it, it, it feels sometimes like I'm in a parallel universe. Yes. What about while you were in prison, um was your mother, who were you being visited by? Uh, really, just, uh, just my mother was the only one that consistently came to see me, but in the last, uh, last uh, five or six years, I think that the long, the three-and-a-half to four-and-a-half-hour trip from, from Peekskill to uh, Elmira Correctional Facility, which is where I spent the 13-and-a-half uh, or the 16 years, I think that the long trip kind of grated on her, and you know, things got real tight financially, and she developed a few back problems and problems in the feet. So at, at the end, I was lucky if I saw her once every uh, six months. Mm-hmm. Six months. Mm-hmm. So that uh, brings me to my next point, actually, yeah. which is that uh, you know when I visit with extended uh, members of my extended family, it, it's an awkward experience because yeah. even though I know who they are intellectually, having uh, memories of them from when I was uh, younger. I mean, you spend vast amounts of time away from people, and they grow in different directions. So they're, you know, uh, I'm, I'm a different person now, and they're, they're different as well. Mm-hmm. So did people, like people in your family or, you know, friends from your neighborhood, did they start to think um, once the trial was over and you were convicted, did, did they start to think that maybe you were guilty? A lot of them have said that. I mean, people have, I mean, reached out to me through emails or Facebook and have, you know, expressed sentiments along those lines. And some of them didn't didn't wait until I was convicted. I mean, they uh, when I was arrested, that was good enough mm-hmm. uh, for them. Well, now, um, now, so you eventually had a lawsuit, like you started mm-hmm. to mention, through the state court or the federal court. Both, and, yes. Both, and well, did you did it, did both of them go to trial? No, I settled. I settled the case in state court, and then in, 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 uh, so in state court, I, I um, settled with them. The, the theory there is, um, you know, what is the state's secondary responsibility and what happened, and then in the federal civil rights uh, lawsuit, that's where you're holding the municipalities and the individual actors responsible. Uh-huh. So in the federal lawsuit, I, I um, sued Legal Aid Society of Westchester, uh-huh. and they settled with me. Uh, I, uh, that was for deficient representation. Yeah. And I uh, sued Westchester County because of the fraud by the medical examiner, and uh-huh. they they had to settle with me. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And I sued uh, Peekskill, and they settled with me. And I sued Putnam, and that I went to trial with. And recently, in October, uh, I won. Huh. Wow. So there were, at least there were there were a lot of people to blame for what happened. They were. They were. <laughs> But, I, but everybody that had a hand in it, I, I held responsible yes. and you know, went after them. So I got yes. some small measure of uh, justice. Yes. Well, another break is here. Um, we, will, we will come back with a happy end to this story after this next break. 
Again, my guest is Jeffrey Deskovic. Uh, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, uh, talking with you about is there hope for the innocents in our jails? Fortunately for my guest, Jeffrey Deskovic, who would not give up, um, and who uh, really did all kinds of productive things while he spent his 16 years in prison um, and wouldn't, wouldn't admit that he was um, guilty because he wasn't, and even though that's, that might have helped to facilitate his uh, being on parole. Um, I, I, I just want to say, um, wh- when you got out, um, well, Jeffrey won, um, or not won, but he earned a Bachelor's of Science in Behavioral a Bachelor of Science in Behavioral Science, and then he went to John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and he got a master's degree. And um, he has won the largest settlement for an exoneree, in other words, for someone who was committed, um, who wasn't guilty, but who was wrongfully uh, imprisoned, and he has won the largest settlement, and he donated $1.5 million of that, to his foundation, the Jeffrey Deskovic Foundation, and we'll, you'll tell us in a minute what that does. But I just want to ask you—you know—it's obviously it's fabulous that after those 16 years, uh, from age 16 or 17 to 32, right? You got out when yes. you were 32. Yes, I did. And um, that's—but those are very important years. Those—that's a very big chunk, an important chunk of your life. And no matter how many millions you get, um, it can't give you that time back. So how have you, you did really well in terms of education, um, especially after, you know, having had those horrendous experiences, but what was it like for you socially uh, after spending those 16 years in jail? Well, it was, and I'll add, still is very difficult uh, socially. It's been hard to put together uh, a social life. I mean, I still still want to, like, you know, throw a ball around and, uh, you know, want to, 
swim and have to do something in the water. Let's throw a ball around. Maybe there's a diving board. I still like going to amusement parks, that kind of thing. But, you know, uh, I'm 41 now, and uh, I really don't find very many people in my age range that still really want to do those things, uh, you know, that have the same, you know, uh, interests that I do. And so, you know, it's... Uh, and what, what's dating like when you finally get to the point of telling the girl that you spent 16 years in state prison? Once that happens, the, like it's, the conversation has totally changed. I mean, I kind of, I can see in, in her mind that I just left the pool of uh, romantic possibilities mm-hmm. to being reduced into the sum total of my, uh, my experience. I mean, obviously, I don't, I don't volunteer that, but then they ask me what I do, and I huh. say I have a nonprofit organization, and then they want to know what's the name of it and what does uh-huh. it do, and it's so great you're doing that. <laughs> but I read about a case like that last week, but you're kind of passionate about this, so how did you get into this? Uh-huh. Now I've got nowhere else left to go, right? So I'm, like, I'm an honest guy, so you know, it's not really in me to just concoct some story, and I uh-huh. think if I did, it, it would be rather easy to discover uh-huh. that, and then, uh-huh. I'm, then I'm definitely finished, right? So uh-huh. I share the story, and uh, you know, I, I feel like uh, at, that's at that point that I kind of get reduced to the sum total of my uh, experience, and mm-hmm. you know, there's some leftover uh, stigma. Yes, you were in there wrongfully, we, we, we get that, but... Um, you did spend 16 years in there, though, nonetheless, and how much of that rubbed off on you. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is it is it safe to be alone somewhere yeah, yeah. Uh, with you? So there's, uh, you know, there's there, there's, uh, some, there's some there's some of that. Uh, I have had a few people tell me that, um, well, they, that they felt like I had, uh, they felt like I probably had too much psychological baggage from my experience mm-hmm. that they didn't want to really deal with. So, you know, so it really sucks because in a lot of ways I feel like I'm still paying for the wrongful conviction even yes, now. Yes, yes. Okay, so let's talk about, and despite all that, you're still uh, passionate about and working on giving back through the foundation. So tell us yes. about um, what the foundation does. Yeah, in a word, the foundation um, fights, we fight wrongful conviction. So we have four prongs. So we, uh, we uh, raise awareness and seek to get changes in the law, and that's all by way of prevention you know, prevent this from happening to other people. Uh, then there's uh, an exonerative component in which we work to free people who already have been wrongfully convicted. So the foundation has a full-time staff attorney, investigator, para- and then a, a paralegal who doubles as an office manager, and we have a volunteer attorney. We have one person that works um, in uh, development. So the legal team works on trying to free people who are wrongfully in prison, not, not simply in the uh, DNA cases as uh, most organizations in the field limit themselves to, which, by the way, is only uh, available in 5 to 12% of all uh, serious felony cases, but also in the non-DNA cases. And then we work to uh, reintegrate people back into society once they've uh, have been exonerated. I mean, whether we're the exonerating entity or, or you know, some other, some other uh, attorney or entity um, uh, was responsible for that. So in our two and a half years of experience, some of our highlights have included, I mean, we helped uh, uh, exonerate William Lopez, who had been incarcerated for 23 and a half years in, in New York and Brooklyn. Um, then we had, uh, Ed just passed away, actually, after about just a year and a half of, uh, of uh, freedom. Uh, we helped two other people uh, get paroled with, while not falsely admitting guilt. 
uh, we constructed a thinking juror's manual and passed that out outside of state and federal courthouses, just important information we think potential jurors should have. Uh, we still we do a lot of... Uh, we um, have, have done a lot of um, not just uh, presentations and media interviews, I mean, uh, but also there's like a what I call like the voluntary compliance track. So we do a lot of training seminars, and I've spoken at police academies, judicial conferences, um, district attorney offices, um, uh, conferences with criminal justice professionals. So there's, uh, there's the, the training aspect uh to it as well, and then we also have uh, an apartment. We have an apart. We have a apartment where the foundation has leased, which uh, provides uh, short term uh, has provided short term housing for people who have been uh, exonerated. Four people have um, utilized the apartment so far. In fact, one of our clients actually, um, uh, through our reintegrative assistance, including but not limited to the to the apartment, um, was able to also complete a bachelor's degree from Mercy College and uh, open up a uh, business in the Bronx called uh, Fresh Take Juice Bar. Uh-huh. That's all really, really wonderful. Um, what, um, how many people do you think, I mean, it's so hard, I mean, it's, you know, I don't know how you would come to this number, but how frequently do you think that people do get wrongfully convicted? Yeah. Um, all right, so... Let me just give some reasons for my answer before yeah. I give my answer, yeah. okay? All right, so in the 16 years that I did wrongfully, uh, 13 people were exonerated either before or after me that I personally did time with. Yes. Okay. Then uh, last year, 89 people were exonerated uh, nationwide. Uh, this year, it's, well, you're just turned, but in the last year, it was, it was, it was more than that. It was more than uh, 90, and we already, uh, and then this year, we're, about to, to have uh, two. Then also, um, since taking office, uh, Brooklyn District Attorney Ken Thompson, who took office in January, from January to now, 11 people have been uh, exonerated through his uh, conviction integrity unit. Uh, every time a rogue uh, police officer has been um, uncovered, I mean, you know, there's uh, hundreds of cases that might have been uh, impacted. The same thing with uh, rogue forensic scientists, you know, could have impacted yeah, thousands of cases. So for every cases. person who has been exonerated, though, there are obviously um, a number. There, um, yes, I think who, the percentage is 15 to 20 percent. That's my that's my 15 that's to my 20 guess. percent. What of, of, of people of the prisoners nationwide have been uh, wow. wrongfully convicted? There's that's a, a lot large. of junk. That's a large number. It, I wanted to give some support for it. That's why I did it that way. But if you think about everything that I just said, okay, and then you factor in that there's a lot of uh, junk sciences, things that have passed for evidence in, in courts, which we now know are, 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 are not are just junk science. I mean, from, from bullet lead uh, analysis to tire tracks to footprints to dental bite marks to... Um, um, Dog scent testimony. I mean, it, it, there's, there's been a lot of things which have, which have passed as evidence, which are which is not evidence. Yes, yes. And well, let me, oh, those let me, are all affecting thousands of cases. Each one of those. Yes. By the way. Let me just stop you because I want to make sure that we have the time for you to give out um, how people can find out more information about you and your foundation, and then also about the Kickstarter campaign. Yes. <coughs> People can learn more about uh, my foundation and me. Just go to the foundation's website. Very easy to remember. Uh, www. 
deskovic.org. That's D-E-S-K-O-V-I-C dot org. Uh, from that website on our homepage, we have an Indiegogo campaign in which we're looking to uh, raise funds to not only maintain the stru- current structure that we have, uh, but also to add necessary components, including adding paralegals, investigators, and an attorney so we could increase the number of uh, cases we can work on at the same time. Currently, we have eight active cases. Look, if, it, if this can happen to me, okay, and I was a Caucasian kid from the suburbs uh, without a record who, who um, was not a high school dropout, I mean, this can, this can happen to anybody. I mean, imagine, imagine people in the yes. minorities and, and ghettos, what type of yes. chance do they have? Yes, yes. All right, well, I want to give that uh, website out again. It's deskovic.org, which is D as in dog, E S. K-O-V-I-C, Deskovic.org. So go to that website, find out more about my guest, Jeffrey Deskovic, and his incredible foundation. Um, you know, it's really, it's really a, a success story, not just in terms of, of you finally getting freed and winning um, uh, co- compensation in court, but also all that you've been doing to give back. That's really wonderful. So I wish you well. I know it's still tough, no matter how many millions you got. And um, you're just doing a wonderful, wonderful job. So thank you very much. Thank you for being on the show, and thank you for all the work that you've been doing. That was my guest, Jeffrey Deskovic, deskovic deskovic.org. You're listening to Dr. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 